Hola, buenas noches. Hello, good evening. Happy Pride Month in San Diego. Um, my name is Fernando Lopez. I am the executive director of San Diego Pride. I use they, them, their pronouns. And it is my pleasure to be with you today for what is our Spirit of Stonewall series. So usually every year we have our Spirit of Stonewall rally. And at that rally, we honor the origins of our movement. We celebrate the heroes in our community that are doing the pioneering work to push our movement forward. And we talk about the work that still needs to be done so that way we continue our pursuit of justice with joy. So this year we're doing things a little different. We're still having our Spirit of Stonewall rally next Friday, um, although it will be virtual and streaming to your homes just like tonight's event. But we've added in these new segments that we're calling the Spirit of Stonewall series where we're taking a little more intentional time to get to know each of our awardees a little better. So while their bios and their photos are usually on our website and in local papers, which they still will be, we're taking a little extra time to have some conversations with them so you can get to know them a little better and the work that they're doing in our community. Uh, tonight's guest is our highest award at San Diego Pride, which is the Champion of Pride Award, which is given to someone who does some incredible pioneering work over a series of years. And this person is truly at the tip of the spear of our movement. And it's an honor to know that Bix Marino Kibbe is our Champion of Pride this year. It's been a pleasure to know them and work with them over the years. Bix is a queer, non-binary trans person, a licensed clinical social worker, and program director for the new Center for Gender Affirming Care at Radies Children's Hospital. They've worked in mental health care for over 15 years, and since moving to San Diego in 2011, their work has focused on bringing community-based wraparound care to marginalized and at-risk youth. As the Director of Behavioral Health at the San Diego LGBT Community Center from 2015 to 2019, Biggs led a team of clinicians providing outpatient therapy to LGBTQ plus people and those impacted by HIV and AIDS. And they made groundbreaking efforts to address the needs of trans and non-binary folks, youth and adults by increasing access to gender affirming mental health care services and helping to navigate the challenging healthcare system. Personally, I also can say that uh, when I was sexually assaulted seven years ago, uh, we came together as a community and uh, Pride and San Diego Pride and the LGBT Community Center to start the LGBTQ Survivors Task Force. And without Bix, I know that we wouldn't have been as successful as a coalition as we have become. And they also helped to start the Me Too LGBTQ Conference, which is a first of its kind conference that centers on LGBTQ care uh, for uh, or, uh, culturally competent survivor care for LGBTQ folks who are survivors. In 2019, Bix joined Rady Children's Hospital as the first program director for the Center for Gender Affirming Care. So please welcome to our virtual stage, Bix Marino Kibbe. Thanks, Fern. Such an honor to be here talking with you today and um, really appreciate the, the recognition. Well, I, I can think of no one better this year to honor, and it's just incredible to have watched you, um, seen you grow and serve our community over the years in such incredible ways. And so um, just thank you for the incredible work that you are doing for our community and for joining us today. Of course, yeah. So we're gonna go through a series of questions, um, and at the end, if we have some time, um, we'll take some questions from the audience, so we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, so again, thank you so much for everything that you've done and everything that you do. You really have been a trailblazer in healthcare, um, in healthcare for our community, for survivor rights and survivor care for the LGBT community, and of course, obviously for trans and non-binary young people, which is so important. So just can you tell us what has that experience been like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been really exciting to be um, you know, not only at the center to um, be in a space that's really, um, you know, so affirming of, of trans and non-binary and queer people. Um, I think it's the first workplace I was ever in where I felt like I could really integrate all parts of myself. Mm -hmm. um, and and then being at Rady has been um, just an amazing opportunity to kind of be on the forefront of healthcare and to um, feel like I have, uh, you know, the, the ability to shape kind of what I would want healthcare to look like, um, you know, for myself, if I were a young trans or non-binary person, I'm trying to access things now. Yeah, I, it's just um, it's just so amazing to know that that is something that exists now. It's, 
Uh, it's incredible. And I'm just so glad to know that you're at the helm of that. <laughs> it gives me great comfort. Thanks. Yeah, um, it's so, nice, you know, uh, I think often we think about, um, you know, trans people are either trans or they're providers, and it's nice to be able to kind of integrate the two and um, to help people understand that, um, you know, people who are a part of the community are also serving the community. And we don't have this kind of us, them dynamic anymore. Yeah, I would. I wonder if you could talk more about that because we talk a lot about that here at Pride and obviously at the center, I know that that was a conversation that happens there and now you're having that at Radies and the ability to actually enter a workplace and be your whole self unapologetically and to not have to explain um, at least in the day to day, the employees and that, you know, you're sort of around, you know, you still end up having to explain yourself, I feel like to you folks on the outside. Um, but for this in particular, like working in a supportive environment where you can bring your whole self, can you speak to that a little more? Because I think not everybody gets to have that experience. Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, I experienced that for the first time working at the LGBT Center in San Diego, where I, you know, for the first time had colleagues who were trans and colleagues who were non-binary and, and queer and, um, knowing that kind of on a day-to-day -day basis, I could um, really kind of connect with, with other people who, who shared a similar life experience. And that wasn't a part of my identity that I had to leave at home or separate from the work um, that I do. And, and at, at Rady, it's a little bit of a different dynamic because um, you know, part of my job is to provide education around the hospital and um, to help healthcare providers understand what it's like to be a, um, a trans person in a healthcare setting. And so I'm using parts of myself in a different way um, mm -hmm. now, but I'm, I'm so lucky to have um, kind of this supportive cocoon of, um, of other kind of queer colleagues at, um, at Rady um, that, that's really kind of provided that support that's needed anytime you're using all those parts of yourself to do work. That's, that's so important. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about the, um, the emotional labor that it takes for someone who is from a marginalized community to do that work, right? You're really like, you're bringing yourself to work and explaining yourself at work. And so it, it, it's just great to hear that you're in such a supportive environment um, because that work to support our kids is just so vital. <laughs> Thank you for doing that emotional labor. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, so what what is uh, gender affirming healthcare and how does it address the needs of our trans and non-binary community? Yeah, so I think of, of gender affirming healthcare in a similar way, um, you know, that I think about trauma informed care. It's it's an additional lens through which we're understanding people. And I think so often, um, you know, and historically, of course, um, trans and non-binary folks um, have, you know, I think, really been pathologized by medical communities. And so it's um, it's really understanding the whole person and understanding the ways that um, that gender kind of impacts our experience in the world. Um, and then I think gender affirming care in terms of what we provide at Rady is about um, trying to create a safe medical home for young people to, um, you know, to be able to come and get all aspects of their care addressed. So, of course, you know, hormones and, and puberty blockers and, you know, connection to gender affirming surgery are all things that are important for, for some and many trans people. Um, but that's not the only part of our medical care that we care about. Mm -hmm. Um, trans people break their arms, we get into car accidents, we get cancer, um, and we need to know that we can go um, to a health system and receive care for any part of ourselves um, and have that be, um, be, be provided in a, in a space that feels respectful, that feels safe. Um, and I think that also understands the way that gender dysphoria impacts how um, people, uh, people's uh, feelings of safety or lack of safety in a, in a healthcare setting. Um, so I think our whole approach has been um, to understand what do people need in order to feel heard, to feel like their care is competent, and um, to feel like it's really individualized to their own needs. Yeah, and that goes right back to even, you know, bringing your whole self, right? You're talking about like bringing your whole self and feeling free to be your whole self at work. And now we're asking young people who are learning the world, who are trying to understand themselves in the world, and saying that you can be safe and bring your whole self without fear into a healthcare setting, right? Which can be so traumatizing. Yeah, yeah I think, um, you know, one of one of one of my goals personally is that I, I want to see this young generation of of queer and trans and, and non-binary people um, feeling comfortable doing preventative healthcare. Um, I know I grew up not necessarily feeling comfortable accessing healthcare, mm -hmm. and that certainly impacts how um, 
how you, you know, manage your healthcare needs as an adult. And so I think we are really trying to set the tone that young people can have a positive experience, they can feel heard, um, that they'll grow up to be adults who take care of all of the parts of their body, whether those parts of their body feel, you know, distressing to them or not. Mm-hmm. And th- I love that this is obviously for gender affirming care. And I think that LGBT, we know, right, that LGBTQ folks as a whole, don't feel comfortable entering into healthcare environments. And that's true of a lot of marginalized communities. And so I'm really hopeful that, again, like here you are again at the at the leading edge of this work where you are helping our trans community and that work can really help to inform a more inclusive overall healthcare experience for a lot of our marginalized community and youth. And it's great to see that Rady's taking that lens. Absolutely. So, you know, we, we actually just, um, as part of our expansion of our clinic, added a brand new division of adolescent medicine and young adult um, healthcare. It's the first time in Rady and it's it's really not a, a specialty that's, um, uh, that's that's seen a whole lot in, in San Diego. And um, a big part of, of that program has been um, making sure that we have diverse representation among the healthcare providers so that when you come in to access your care, you see yourself reflected. Um, you know, if I never see another trans provider that, you know, that doesn't help me feel you know, very secure and safe. Um, we want to make sure that, you know, that all of our, um, you know, the patients that may want to come to our care, whether, um, you know, whether there are socioeconomic differences or, you know, racial diversity, or we see a lot of kids who are, you know, in systems of care. And we want everyone to be able to come and feel represented and feel um, like their whole person is understood. And that's so important. And I wanted to go back to a piece of that that is the trauma-informed care, because you, you said it, and not necessarily everyone who's watching might fully understand what trauma-informed care is. And we talk about you know trauma-informed education, trauma-informed organizing. And so what is, what, what is trauma-informed care for everyone? Yeah, I think trauma-informed care is about understanding the ways in which you know experiences that someone may have had in their lives um, impact their experience of accessing care. Um, and that's, uh, you know, from uh, the person that greets them when they first, you know, drive into the parking garage to, you know, the, the provider that's actually, um, you know, seeing you and maybe providing your exam, understanding the ways in which, um, you know, sometimes knowingly or unknowingly, we interact with people in a way that, that, um, that re-traumatizes them or that triggers, um, you know, a trauma response and working to minimize um, that harm that's being done. So, you know, for instance, in our clinic, um, we have some providers who really specialize in trauma-informed gynecological care, which is so important for people who may have, you know, sexual trauma history, but also really important for trans and non-binary people who may be very traumatized by having to have exams related to those parts of their body, mm-hmm. um, thinking about the ways in which we interact. Um, another thing that we talk about a lot um, at Radian with our, our gender care is um, narrating care. So if you're someone who's experienced a traumatic situation, um, oftentimes there's a lot of anxiety about the unexpected or not knowing you know, what, uh, you know, what an interaction may be like. And so we really talk with providers about saying out loud everything that you're about to do. So I talk with young people a lot about um, you know, your first meeting with the doctor, you're gonna sit on the exam table, no one's going to ask you to take your clothes off. You're going to just, you know, wear your own clothes and you're just going to talk and they're going to get your medical history. And that really helps reduce anxiety because you know, I think a lot of young people are worried about how is dysphoria going to pop up for me in this interaction. And if I can just know ahead of time, I'm going to maybe that something unpleasant is going to happen. But if I know that ahead of time, I can prepare myself for that. And then we can talk about what are the ways in which your provider can help minimize the harm. So are there sensory things that you have needs around? Are there things that are particularly triggering? Um, how do we plan for those so that you can have a really, you know, as, um, you know, as positive of, of an experience as you can have? Uh, I'm, I'm just beaming because I'm just so happy to hear that that level of intention and care is happening for our youth. Um, I have a personal connection to Radies. My brother was diagnosed with leukemia when he was five. And so we spent, I'm from the El Centro, the Imperial Valley Regional originally, and we spent so much time at Radies Children's Hospital. And so even back then, I mean, this is like 34 years ago, uh, dating myself, but where they would, the the physicians and the nurses would bring in stuffed animals and my brother was given a Snoopy. And so they were like, okay, and this is where we're going to give you a shot. And this is going to feel like and right here. And they would show, they would actually show my little brother 
on the doll exactly what they were going to do. And then um, I ended up being a, don a bone marrow transplant or bone marrow transplant donor for my brother. And so they gave me Woodstock. And so they showed me on Woodstock. And so I love that that practice is still happening and really helping to minimize the trauma that our youth are going through because that it can be scary going into a hospital. Absolutely. And the great thing is that this is stuff that providers already know how to, they know how to do do this type of thing when it comes to preparing someone for surgery or preparing someone for you know some sort of procedure that might be scary. So it's just redirecting their attention to understand that this also applies to gender dysphoria and this also applies to the way that you know trans and non-binary and queer people experience healthcare settings. That's amazing. Uh, so the, ne the next question is: How can healthcare providers practice gender affirming healthcare more effectively? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we talk a lot with primary care doctors and with providers who may have some hesitation because they feel like, um, you know, I need to be an expert in this care or I can't serve this community. Mm -hmm. And um, the reality is, um, you know, I think it's, it's like being, um, you know, culturally humble um, in any other aspect of care. It's listening to patients and understanding that patients are the experts on their lives and patients know who they are. Um, I think oftentimes when we talk about trans and non-binary youth or youth who may be kind of questioning their gender identity, um, there's this, um, this, this inclination, I think, sometimes to question whether young people can know who they are. And I think that's the quickest way to signal to that young person that you're not a safe person for them to be open with. And I think one of the most important things in a healthcare dynamic is to have trust with your provider. Um, so really listening, um, really understanding that person as an individual, not making assumptions about um, you know, other trans people you may know, not all trans and non-binary people experience their bodies in the same way, not all people need the same things. Um, and so really taking that time to listen. Yeah, what a, what a concept. <laughs> it, it really gets down to it. I mean, it's so simple sometimes, like, you know, I've heard horror stories of, of LGBTQ folks who are, you know, come in with pink eye and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, but you're a gay. So like, I can't help your pink eye, like, or whatever it is, you know, it's. Like, no, it's I'm still actually a human being and regular old medical science will help us get through this moment. Thank you. It's true. And I think the other piece is, just, is name and pronouns and just understanding how important they are. So we talk a lot about pronouns and correct names for trans and non-binary people are like medicine. And we know that using the wrong name and pronouns can cause an immense amount of harm and using the right name and pronouns can cause a lot of healing. And so, you know, if you were about to watch your colleague give um, a patient the wrong medication, you would probably step in and say something. And so we want to frame the name and pronoun conversation in the same way. Um, we need to help each other do the best work we can do. Um, and that means that we have to be willing to be active allies and to, you know, to step up and intervene if someone is being harmed. And looking at the whole person. Yeah. Well, that, and that brings us to our next question, which is how, how has your journey as a queer non-binary trans person influenced your work and your career? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's, it's been helpful in that, you know, I, I'm one queer trans non-binary perspective. So I, I certainly don't represent everyone's experience, but I do know what it's like to sit in a, in a doctor's office and to wonder if I'm gonna be heard, um, to wonder if my provider um, really understand or if I can be open. I've certainly had those experiences where I had to, you know, kind of tailor my story so that it, you know, would would be an easier conversation with a healthcare provider. And um, and so I, I think that that's been really helpful. Um, uh, you know, I, I think also um, working with families, you know, um, I've experienced my own family going through a journey of kind of coming to understand myself. And I think that has helped me to really not be judgmental when I have families come in who really are at the beginning of this journey and who love their kids, but they just, they don't know what they don't know. And they, they desperately want to help their kids, but they just need somebody to walk them through that. And so I think, um, you know, that's helped me have a lot of patience with families and, and to really not judge them because I, I don't think I've met a single parent yet who didn't come from a place of love, even if what they were doing was causing harm. I think, I think that's a really hard, concept for a lot of folks to understand. Um, and I'm really glad you you brought that up is, you know, we're helping our own families understand, right? And, you know, we talk about the concepts of coming out and we, and that's great. We also sometimes don't talk about the mourning process or, or the loss of expectation that our family members go through to like learn 
relearn who the person is in front of them, even though to us, like we may be the same, like they're learning something new. And so it is a journey and a process for, for our own families um, or the people that we work with. And so again, it goes back to just really great that you are there and that Radies is taking the lead on this to really make sure that they're helping the families and the physicians through understanding that process. And I think, you know, I, I'm lucky to work with a really great team of physicians who, um, you know, really take a collaborative approach. And there are some times where there are conversations that, you know, I as a trans person just am not going to be effective in having a certain conversation with a family. And that's when, you know, the physician mm. will step in and, and have a conversation that they may be better positioned to have. Um, and then there are times when I can have a conversation with a family that the provider could never have. Um, so, you know, we all bring parts of ourselves to this work and figuring out how to kind of lean on one another and, and really kind of create a scenario that's going to help the family most. That's, that's incredible. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that, that it is that collaborative. So how about, has, uh, would you say that parts of your identity have led to challenges in your career or, or can you speak to any of that? Um, I mean, I think uh, there were certainly jobs that I, I've had in the past where there was no queer visibility, no trans visibility. And so it felt daunting to be able to bring all parts of yourself. Um, I think starting my work at the center certainly um, created a space where, um, you know, I think for the first time I could integrate all parts of myself. Um, I know that there are some families that I meet with who, um, you know, and, and I, I really share, you know, details about my own identity, but families make assumptions based on, you know, who they see. And, um, and so there are some families who are just not going to hear anything that I have to say because mm -hmm. they think that as a trans person, um, I can't, uh, you know, adequately assess, assess their, their child. But I think that those situations are, are few and far between. Um, and again, that's, that's why we have a team approach so that I'm not the only person that people have to meet with. Well, it's so impressive to think like to even hear that and how far it's come because it wasn't always, not that it's easy now, right? I mean, obviously we all have jobs doing this work for a reason, um, that the work still needs to be done. But to even know that here we are sitting in a moment where people, you know, young people are watching this right now and they are seeing a trans non-binary person who is a director of gender affirming care at Radies Children's Hospital. Like that is a new thing that exists and you get to be that person. And that is inspiring to folks. And I, you know, it goes to why you're receiving the award this year. And I just think, like all of the work that happened before this for you to have this position. Um, and then I hope that you know that you having this position is also changing perceptions for folks and, and building a better, safer and inspiring path for the next generation of folks. And yeah. quite literally, so. <laughs> I think none of, you know, none of this, you know, the creation of my position, this kind of work towards expanding um, the, the, the gender clinic would have happened without years of kind of community advocacy, young people, um, you know, being vocal about what they need from a healthcare system, parents really collaborating with one another and pushing these systems forward. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, um, these, these things take time and they don't happen without that, that advocacy and that, you know, people being vocal. Absolutely. And, and I mean, the center, I mean, so many community advocates and just those supportive parents. And that's how things really get done. You like, want to get something done, piss off a parent. So that's true. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let me see. The next question is COVID-19 pandemic has revealed a dire shortfalls and disparities in our healthcare system, um, especially for POC, queer and trans folks. Can you speak to how any of that has impacted your work, any of the challenges that that have brought um, that COVID has brought to you? Yeah, so we, you know, pretty quickly in our clinic transitioned to um, a complete telehealth model. Um, we felt like most of the care that we're providing involves talking and was something that could easily be done remotely. Um, and I think we quickly found that families, for the most part, really and, and young people really preferred that model of care. Um, I think for a lot of young people, that distance from that healthcare setting that can be so mm. times felt really safe. Um, I know that if I'm sitting in my bedroom talking to my doctor, there's no way I'm going to have a physical exam today um, because I'm sitting here in my in my bedroom. Um, and I think that's reassuring for some young people. Um, you know, I think many of the young people that we've been working with have have really appreciated having a break from school and being able to kind of be at home, um, especially for some folks that are 
in, you know, an early kind of transition process and really want that space to kind of um, not have to go to school every day, especially if they're in a school setting that's not the most supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's been this other kind of cohort of young people. Um, it's the, the young people who have just gone off to their first year of college and have kind of for the first time found their people and been able to kind of really go on this journey and then unexpectedly had to return home um, with COVID. Um, some mm-hmm. of those young people are, are struggling because um, you know they, they didn't expect to have to leave that cozy cocoon and they're back in the fishbowl of their, their families sometimes. And um, I think that's felt really disheartening for some, some young people. But I think in, in general, COVID has meant that we're reimagining what healthcare provision can look like um, so we, we serve a, a pretty large geographic area. We have families that come from, um, you know, Imperial Valley. We have uh, uh, families that come down from Riverside, families coming from, from Northern Mexico. And to think about ways that we can provide care without them having to drive hours and hours to see us, um, I think will we'll really just ultimately improve access for, um, you know, for some of our families that live in more rural areas. Um, That's incredible. So we're, um, you know, we have started doing top surgery assessments over um, telehealth, and that has also really kind of increased that access. We're doing a study right now to look at, you know, if we were to kind of move forward with expanding our telehealth services, what are the best practices? What are our trans patients saying they want out of a telehealth service? What works for them? What doesn't work? What are the barriers? Um, so that we can really, this is kind of an opportunity to get it right. How many, um, how many gender affirming care centers like Radies are there in the country? So there are over 50 um, clinics around the country, um, many at large hospitals, some not. Um, but yeah, it's, it's rapidly expanding. And what would be the closest to you? Is it, what's the most nearby uh, outside mm-hmm. of Rays? Well, so within San Diego, um, you know, there's been actually kind of an explosion of, of care. And so Planned Parenthood, for instance, has started providing gender affirming care. Um, folks at San Ysidro Health are expanding their care providing some pediatric services. Um, Borrego Health um, has for a long time been providing a lot of care kind of all over um, both, you know, Southern California. Um, and then, you know, Children's Hospital in LA has been a long time leader in, in, in this care and our, you know, colleagues that we work closely with. Um, the, the, the nice thing about this type of care is that um, the clinics are very well networked and it's a pretty small community of providers. And so we all kind of lean on one another to make sure that we're, you know, we're all kind of providing the most up-to-date and best care. I love that. And I ask because, you know, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, maybe it was that long ago. It feels like yesterday, but 20, 2009 and 2010, um, one of the big calls to action, even up into 2013, I remember, was that, you know, we just, we had this dearth of gender affirming care in particular for youth. And so to know that in some, what is a relatively short period of time, that there has been this explosion in com- competent services that really, like, just you know, less than a generation ago, just didn't exist. Yeah, and I think that's been kind of really the the goal of our clinic at Rady is we know that kind of as the largest um, you know children's hospital in San Diego, that when families encounter something that they're not sure about, um, they may look to a place like Rady, and we want to be prepared to answer that call, and it, it may mean that. Ultimately, we help connect them to a provider that's closer to them geographically or that's maybe a better fit for them um, for whatever reason. But we want people to know that when they call Rady, they can have answers and they can be connected to whatever it is that they need. That's amazing. Uh, let's see. What? Oh, how can the community help marginalized voices uh, find confidence and power? This is um, um, a generic question, I think. But I, I think, you know, yeah, how, how can the community how can the community help marginalized voices find confidence and power? I think passing the mic to marginalized people, so giving people space to speak on their own experiences, not speaking for people. Um, you know, I think young people have a, a lot to say, and um, I think this this next generation of young people are give me a lot of hope, definitely. Um, I can't wait until I'm kind of like the conservative voice in the room and these young people are pushing us forward <laughs> in a um, you know, more progressive way. Um, so I think it's listening. They have things to say and they, they're knowledgeable and they have ideas. Um, you know, I think looking at who, um, you know, who has access to positions of power and making sure that the right voices are at the table making decisions. Mm-hmm. The kids are going to be all right. As long as we keep it up, the kids are going to be all right. 
uh, I, I swear our youth programs, uh, I, some of the, our kids are just incredible and like, they're just ready to take on the world and way smarter than I was when I was their age. And I'm just, uh, you know, every generation's doing their part and it, it's just great to see this progress. Yeah. Um, what are you, uh, oh, let's see, what was the next question? We are actually, we are so proud of our LGBTQ youth and we know that many are feeling isolated at home right now. And during this difficult time, what words of encouragement would you give them? I think, you know, to know that they're not alone. Um, I, uh, I think often when I meet with young people, they feel like they're the only one experiencing what they're experiencing and knowing that there are lots of other people kind of experiencing the same thing. Um, I think also it's really important for young people to connect to to, to history and to have connection with trans elders. And there's such a rich history of resilience in this community. And, um, you know, I think we, we talk about um, health disparities and those things are so important. And you know, I have a lot of parents come in and they have a lot of fear about um, things that their children may face in the world. But I think equally important is helping them connect to the parts of the history that really demonstrate so much resilience and to understand the kind of legacy of, of building families of choice and the ways in which people have connected um, out of survival. Um, and I think if young people can kind of um, connect with elders on the, you know, I think there, there's a strength that people take in knowing that you have a history, that you're not alone um, in this moment, but there's a whole, you know, that there are generations of people behind you, you know, kind of upon whose shoulders you're standing. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's so important. And I love that you talked about resilience. So we, we have uh, Pride Live coming up here in just a little over a week. And um, it, right now it's looking like it's gonna be about eight hours of pre-recorded and live content. And throughout that, we've included these stories that we're calling, calling stories of resilience. And it is a very like focused lens on San Diego LGBT history specifically. And a lot of the challenges that the LGBT community has faced here over the last 50 years and how we've been resilient as a community and um, really honoring our, our elders, honoring the pioneers, but like really specifically talking about some of the big challenges through Briggs Initiative and HIV and some of the terror attacks that we've been through and how our community has found resilience and, and you know, Times have been tough. We didn't always have a pride organization that was the size that we are, or the, the LGBT center that has as many programs and supportive services that they do, which you're on the board of the LGBT center. And um, for folks watching who didn't know that, and uh, and now Rady's Children, like there's so much that has happened that we have all fought for and that um, helping our youth get connected to those stories and that history. I think that is so true that it helps them know that they're a part of something much bigger though. They might feel isolated from that at home. Absolutely. And, um, and, and just another plug that we, uh, we collected all the regional LGBTQ youth serving organizations. So if you actually go to sdpride.org slash youth, um, so many of them are now doing this sort of online virtual meetups. And so whether it's North County LGBT Center or the LGBTQ Center or Our Safe Space and um, I think Gender Fluid Collective, there's a few others, PFLAG, well, they're doing the adults, um, but they're all meeting online and they are finding spaces for youth to connect and, and um, support each other. So it's really great to see how they're adapting with the technology and really taking hold of that. And I think that's been so great for some of our young people who maybe aren't so comfortable going physically to a location the first time. Um, but I think it feels like a, a less daunting way to connect with other people. So I, that's another place where I am hopeful that we'll kind of continue some element of this virtual um, connection. Yeah, I think I think so, it, because it's, it feels safe in some of the same ways you're talking about the telehealth that, you know, it can be so scary to go to an LGBTQ center, right? Like you're like, oh God, cause that means something and there's a connotation to that. And what if I'm caught and what are other people gonna think? And especially when you're young and you're figuring that out, that can be terrifying, but maybe like clicking on a link and going to a Zoom room from your cell phone is, you know, easier and safer and you can like clock out real quick and, and no one's gonna know and, and that's a little easier. Yeah. Um, and that being said, there are people who absolutely need that in-person connection and, you know, it's so important too. So I know that the folks at the center are, are really working hard to try to kind of meet all of those needs right now and doing kind of 
phone check-ins with people and, and hopeful that they'll get back in person shortly. Um, but but it's, it's tough to meet all the needs during this time. Oh yeah, I, I, I'm an introvert and I can't wait to be around people again. <laughs> that, says, that says something. <laughs> yeah. But even even with all these things coming going online, it's been I think one of the most I don't know one of the things that warms my heart is I'm I'm seeing like you know uh, was it L A and San Francisco and New York and then of course Global Pride though all those just happened in virtual spaces and seeing the comments of young people saying oh my gosh I'm so grateful this was my first Pride um, like I or I finally got to go to a Pride I've never been able to go to a Pride and this is the first time the first way I was actually able to feel like I went to a Pride and connected with people that's just been really I was like, wasn't expecting to have all the feels seeing that. Yeah, I think it's been it's been huge for people to be able to dip their toe into something that doesn't always feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, so speaking of which, actually, this this wasn't in the questions that we sent over, but um, I wanted to talk briefly about what I mentioned in the intro. Um, it was seven years ago. I was drugged and um, and raped, and um, quickly found that there were not services for me. Um, that the, the educational materials, that even these advocacy groups that were supposed to be there for survivors, uh, the materials, the resources that were there were so directed towards cisgender uh, women. And that was really hard to uh, go in and experience that. And a lot of the LGBT content that was provided still talked about the shame of being LGBT. And I was just like, what is what am I receiving right now? Um, and, you know, Dolores, uh, Dr. Jacobs was the CEO at the center at the time, and we uh, connected with the center and the Center for Community Solutions in San Diego Pride, and we worked together to try to formulate what it was that LGBTQ survivors needed. And we met for about a year amongst ourselves, sort of like talking about the different things that we needed. And I really felt like when you stepped into that coalition in your role as uh, the director of behavioral health, or I think you got the promotion like in the middle of that, um, <laughs> It it was night and day, and I can never thank you enough for really pushing that work forward. And I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about your role in the LGBTQ Survivors Task Force and what the, the role of that group did. Because um, I don't know that a lot of folks really know that it exists still or what it really does. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, as a mental health provider, um, you know, I, I definitely heard, you know, from the members of that coalition that there was this this really lack of accessible, um, trauma-informed and kind of LGBT-affirming providers. And, um, you know, kind of the, the available services were not adequate um, to meet people's needs. And so, um, you know, I think we, we spent a lot of time brainstorming and trying to get the right people to the table, kind of combination of, of people with, you know, clinical backgrounds, lived experience, both combinations of all of those things to figure out, um, you know, what was going to be the best kind of plan of action for our region to make sure that, um, you know, people had the, the education and the knowledge that they needed to, to provide care. And I think, um, you know, trans care is similar in that we can't, you know, our small clinic can't be everything that all trans and non-binary people need in the same way that, you know, the center can never be everything that the LGBT community needs. Um, and so we needed to look at ways to increase the competency of, um, you know, all of the different service providers within San Diego. And so I think the big, big action for the first year was putting on a conference and looking at how could we kind of make more accessible that education that, um, that people would need so that they could provide care within whatever context it was that they were working. Um, and then, you know, I know we did a lot of talking about bystander intervention and kind of engaging some industry folks to make sure that um, that was also a component of the intervention. Um, and then also making sure that there were spaces for survivors to talk and connect and um, and heal and feel seen and heard. Um, and I think now we're, I know I um, sadly had to kind of leave that that project because of, of starting at, at Rady, but I think we're in like the third year maybe. It continues on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm just like blown away by how much things have expanded. Um, it's amazing. It, it, it has continued on and it's just been 
really incredible to see because you're so right. It was about bringing in together the community organizers, the advocates, the people with lived experiences, the nonprofits that had resources or minimal resources, but like pulled together, we were able to actually accomplish something greater. And like North County Lifeline with Kathleen Thomas um, or Thompson um, and uh, uh, camp came on board and really like it was all these people could have brought a different lens, a different skill, a different perspective. And we made it free. I mean, it was, there was like a $40 charge if you wanted educational units. And, but really it was free because we, you're right. We wanted to build the capacity outside of just the LGBT center or the center for community solutions. And part of what happened early on was, the LGBTQ center or LGBT center helped to train CCS on LGBTQ cultural competency. Mm-hmm. And then CCS was like, okay, and we're going to train uh, LGBT center folks on trauma informed care and survivor care. And then it was like, okay, now by our powers combined, we're going to train. And it was like 114 people that first year who were then able to like come and learn in this deeper way. And that was just, it went on to its second year and this is its third year. And I don't know if you're aware yet or not, but um, they, the conference is still happening, but it's gonna be like this. It's gonna be virtual with like breakout workshops. So we're still doing it. It's gonna be sometime this fall and we'll be announcing the date soon. Awesome, so exciting. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that that platform will also kind of allow you to reach some people that you know geographically can't come to Hillcrest or um, you know, who, who for whatever reason can't, you know, can't be there in person. Yeah, and I think to to our understanding from the committee uh, that is still meeting virtually, their understanding is that we are still the only conference of this type in the country, um, and that started between uh, the you know the center and Pride and CCS. So and it's still going, and folks have actually started to fly. Like last year, folks were flying in from around the country to come to the conference, and so I think you're right that the reach this year will be that much further. It's amazing. So um, what, what's been your biggest personal like frustration during COVID? This is just a fun question. Like what, what's the thing that you're like, man, this sucks. <laughs> well, I, I'm an introvert in case you didn't know that. <laughs> so I I'm with my best life. <laughs> like, uh, COVID is, you know, I'm happy to be at home with, with family. Um, you know, I think the, the challenging thing is I have a, a, a five-year-old. Um, and so, you know, figuring out how to make sure that, you know, he gets all of his needs met while being stuck at home with us. And, um, you know, I, I definitely miss, you know, traveling and seeing people and I'm an introvert, but I also like to connect with people. Um, so I, um, I'll be happy when I can kind of more freely connect with people. Agreed. I, introvert over here too, but like, I think my introvert meter is about to run out and I just like, I need to like actually be around folks for a little bit, but you know, who knows how long that'll be. Yeah, totally. <laughs> What's the what's the thing that's been bringing you joy in all of this? Maybe it's also your five year old. I think it's you know hands down just the the young people and the families that I get to see every day, and um, just seeing these amazing kids be so authentic with their lives, and um, to be able to be on that journey with them feels like just the the biggest privilege. Um, you know, I I get to see this kind of intimate part of their journeys um, that that not everyone gets to see, and and I just I, I feel really lucky to be able to be a part of that. Thank you. So uh, that was the end of our pre-written uh, questions, and but it's Pride season, so uh, and we've still got some time. What's your favorite Pride memory? It could be your first Pride memory or in most impactful. It doesn't have to be San Diego Pride. Not yeah. that I'm biased. Um, <laughs> it could be any Pride. Um, yeah. What's your favorite Pride memory? Well, my first Pride ever was actually in Virginia. I went to college in Virginia. And so I think I went to Pride in Richmond, maybe much smaller than, um, than Pride in, in San Diego. Um, but there's something about a small community, especially in the South, where just LGBT organizing has almost like a different meaning, um, more of a, a survival need, I think, around it. Um, and then I, I lived in Boston for a while, so I really enjoyed going to, you know, Boston has a great dyke march that's really important. And um, I think that like seeing that kind of empowerment of all different types of gender expression um, was, was really something powerful for me. Um, and then I think, you know, 
I'm, I'm trying to think when my first pride in San Diego was, um, but probably that, that first year that I moved back here to San Diego, where I was able to be there kind of with, with my spouse and then being able to take my, my kid, I think it's just been amazing. And that was, that was 2011. Yes. Yeah. Was that, that, was that, my first, year, right? that was my first pride on staff. was 2011. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I think, I think we had a newborn during the year that it rained. So we, so we got to skip that year. That was five years ago. So yes, that was, <laughs> that was perfect, perfect timing. I, you know, I think that was the most, I thought that was the most traumatizing pride, but who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I was, we all, we all got wet and had fun and danced in the rain and it was great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what's your, what would be your pride message? I know we already talked about what would you say to youth right now, but what's your pride message to folks who are watching? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, my pride message would be that our work is not done. Um, and I think that there are a lot of ways that um, things have gotten a lot of, a lot better for some people and um, there are people being left behind. And I think it's important for us to kind of remember the origins of pride and to understand that, um, that there are still a lot of people who don't have access to the things that they need. And there's still a lot of voices that are not being heard. Um, and while it's a celebration and that's really important, um, it's also important to know that, you know, pride is, is about action and it's about, um, you know, community organizing and it's about, um, you know, pushing things forward and we, we haven't, we haven't arrived yet. Yeah. That, that's very real. And it's great to be in a city where our pride organization itself isn't just the organization that puts on a parade and a festival that the pride organization here is a year round education and advocacy organization with 37 different programs doing that work. So if folks want to get involved in that work, they can do it through the pride organization or through the center or North County center or P flag, or there's like, I think we have 81 LGBT serving community nonprofit partners at this point, because, there, you know, our, our needs continue to grow and more and more nonprofits continue to sprout up to serve different niches in the community. So there's so many ways that folks can really get involved because you're so right, that work is not yet done. And we had a major, major Supreme Court victory with Title VII, but that's, you know, that's still just part of it. And whether it's getting counted with the census or showing up to vote, registering to vote, showing up to vote, organizing people to get out the vote, uh, you know, those are just some accessible things that folks can do in the next few months. And there's so much more work to do beyond that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Bix. I, I love you so much. I appreciate you so much. It's just been an incredible honor to know you and to work with you all these years. And I look forward to seeing all the incredible things you're going to continue to do for our community. And if any of us here watching or me personally or Pride can do to support the incredible work that you're doing or that Radies is doing, I'm sure we're all here to help. Yes, definitely, definitely appreciate that. Um, you know, we, we are always, I think, in our, our clinic looking for more support, um, you know, without kind of financial support, we can't continue to expand the, the program. So, um, so, yeah, and it's such an honor. I really appreciate um, this award, you know, somebody who's not always comfortable with the spotlight. Um, it, I, I appreciate, um, you know, caring about, uh, about the work that's being done with youth. Well, we're, we're excited that it got to be you this year. I was so thrilled and it's so deserving. And I know that you are an introvert and I know that you shy away from public speaking. And so I feel like we got like tricked you into like, no, we're just like, it's you and me. We're just talking and it's super fine. Like, <laughs> don't worry about thousands it's of a people. a scenario for me. So <laughs> yeah, I, I will take a virtual event any day. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining. Happy Thank Pride. You. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Um, it's just been a joy to be able to bring all of this new educational content uh, into your living rooms. And it's been wonderful to see where normally when we would do an educational event um, or a speaker series, we'd maybe get like 40 to 100 people in a room. But these uh, virtual events are actually getting somewhere between six, 10 or 50,000 people who are watching over this series of um, either it being live or as it remains on our page and folks are tuning in and sharing it. So I just really appreciate all of you for tuning in, for sharing the content. And thank you to everyone who's contributed. Obviously, 
Pride, the parade and the festival are single biggest fundraisers that we have every single year. And with COVID-19, that's canceled all of our uh, in-person events and a big chunk of our income. And so for the folks who have really stepped up and supported by giving monthly or donating in the last few weeks, thank you so much. We've actually had a record number of donors and we raised just over $35,000 in just the last couple of weeks. And so we're still raising funds. If you enjoy what San Diego Pride does as a year-round education and advocacy organization, if you appreciate the content that we're able to deliver to you now, please consider becoming a monthly supporter of San Diego Pride, and you can do that at sdpride.org slash donate. We've got a lot more educational content coming your way. Um, I'm really excited that SheFest is happening this Saturday, and it's not just one streaming event. It's several streaming events happening all at the same time, so you can pick and choose which piece of the program that you want to partake in. So all of that information is at our website, of course, sdpride.org. Um, our interfaith event, Light Up the Cathedral, is happening next Wednesday. Looking forward to that. Of course, the Spirit of Stonewall uh, Rally will be happening next Friday at 6 o'clock, uh, the 17th. And we actually will be raising the Pride flag. Please do not go to the Pride flag. <laughs> We're still socially distancing, no in-person events. We're just streaming things live. We're going to raise the flag just like we normally do. And then Pride Live will start Saturday, July 18th. Uh, at 10 a.m. and we'll run for about seven and a half to eight hours. So we're looking forward to all of that. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, my name is Fernando Lopez. They, them, theirs pronouns. It's been an exciting year to say the least. And uh, together we rise. Happy Pride season. <laughs>